Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to New Books and Archaeology. My name is Robert Broadway, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Douglas Bamforth about his book, The Allen Side. A professor of anthropology at the University of Colorado at Boulder, Doug is an active archaeologist who works primarily on the Great Plains, the author of three books with more to come, dozens of papers, chapters, reviews, and reports with more to come. Doug likes to ask important questions in Great Plains archaeology, uh, from the Paleo-Indian all the way down. Questions like, how different was Paleo-Indian large-scale bison hunting from post-Paleo-Indian large-scale bison hunting? He has a BA from the University of Pennsylvania and an MA and a PhD from the University of California, Santa Barbara. Available on Amazon for reasons that we are about to discuss, the Allen site is an extraordinary example of dedication and professionalism in the field of archaeology. Combining the work of 11 contributors, the book is superbly written in clear, easy-to-understand language and illustrated with photos, maps, and drawings. If you are interested in Paleo-Indian archaeology on the Great Plains, you need a copy of the Allen site in your library. Hello, Doug. Thank you for joining me today. Happy to be here. The Allen site is uh, dedicated to Edward Mott Davis. Tell us who that is. Well, the Allen site is one of the three Paleo-Indian sites that are located really close to one another in one drainage in southwestern Nebraska. And Mott was the archaeologist who dug two of them. Um, he dug the Lime Creek site and the Red Smoke site. And he was on the faculty down in the, at the University of Texas for ever. And... Um, had sort of turned away from that work when I came to the Allen site and kind of picked it up. And he was just amazingly supportive of everything we did. He's one of the nicest people in the world. And you know, he would sit and go through his old field notes to answer questions that I couldn't get answered in any other way. Came up and joined us in the field um, one summer. Just a wonderful, wonderful man. And, and really fundamental to, to the work that we were able to do. Everything that we did kind of built on what he did. For those interested in, in, in North American Paleo-Indian archaeology, that, that chunk of Nebraska and, and Medicine Creek um, specifically is the source of unending fascination. Why is that? It, I think it's got a long history. The sites were discovered you know, back in the 1940s, so people have known about it for a long time. What I think most amazing about it is the proximity of these multiple sites to one another. Usually we get, you know, one site here and one site there, and they're state, uh, states apart, or, and, you know, centuries different in age, and, and we kind of have to talk about big scales of space and time um, in order to do anything with paleoindian archaeology because the database is kind of thin. But at Medicine Creek, you know, we can talk about places that 
or within walking distance of each other where we knew people lived at these sites at exactly the same time. Um, or close enough to exactly the same time to to think of them people literally moving the same individuals may be moving back and forth between them. And I think that makes it a really different place. And I think that's one of the reasons that it's been important people pay attention to. So if I understand this correctly, the Allen site was was investigated in in forty six, forty seven, and forty eight, and the uh, Red Smoke and, and Lime Creek were were also investigated in the forties. Uh, site reports were uh, were written on on Lime Creek and and, and Red Smoke. I think it's sometime in the fifties. But then, what happened to the Allen site materials for what fifty plus years? They sat in boxes um, at the museum at the University of Nebraska, um, and pretty much nobody looked at them. They kind of forgot about them. And I think two things kind of happened in the discipline as a whole. Um, one is that people got, you clearly understood how important chronology was, and the chronology is that people were building based on radiocarbon um, Start that sentence over. Some of the very first radiocarbon dates that were run in North America were actually run on the Allen site. And as we got to know more about the Paleo-Indian period, it became really clear that they were at least some of them were problematic. And so people sort of said they decided they weren't really sure about how old the site. Was. So that's one thing that happened. But the other thing that happened is that Joe Ben Wheat um, here in Boulder. Um, at the Olson, worked at the Olson Chubbuck site, and George Trisson kind of took off from Joe Ben's work on bison, you know, big bison kills, and everybody's attention in Paleo-Indian archaeology got diverted to large-scale bison. And sites like the Medicine Creek sites that don't document that, that document sort of, sort of very day-to-day lives of people living in campsites, and just didn't have the drama and weren't sort of in the, the I don't know, world view of most of the archaeologists who were sort of looking at Paleo-Indian, at the Paleo-Indian period for a couple of decades. And they, so they kind of fell out of people's memories. And you can see that. In, I mean, if you look at summaries of Great Plains archaeology or Paleo-Indian archaeology, if they were written before the 1970s, they always met, mentioned the Medicine Creek site. Um, they always own the ambiguity and the age, you know, because the radiocarbon dates were, you know, were were, were vague and con- a little bit contradictory. Um, but then you get into the 1970s and nobody mentions them. And they all mention Olson Chubbuck and uh, Agate Basin and Tolson sites and things like that. Um, and it's just a shift in the way we thought about them. And that's really accelerated for it well into the 1990s. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, this is the ultimate cold case. The, the evidence is 10,000 years old at least. And, and the last time that, that, that the case was looked at by an investigator was 50 plus years ago. Yeah. Why, did, why did you shoulder the responsibility to, to, to completing the Allen site, the Allen site site report? I mean, given the fact that, that the Allen site, it's, it's underwater and, and it has been for decades. Yeah, yeah. I did my dissertation um, on Paleo-Indian archaeology, but it was a library dissertation. And uh, I mean, 
I sort of predicted the kinds of things we should see and went through the data such as they are that were relevant to you know what I was talking about. But I, you know, I finished that my degree um, and didn't you know I didn't have a Paleo Indian site, but I had strongly Paleo Indian interests, and that was my research trajectory. And I got my first job at the University of Nebraska, and so I, you know, I got there with without a project in hand. Um, and just the first thing people said was, oh, you know, we've got the collections from Medicine Creek. Uh, basically, they'd just been sitting. And they were, you know, as soon as we opened up the boxes, you could see that, you know, there were that means thousands and thousands of objects and, you know, not as well documented as they would have liked. But as soon as I got into them, I realized, you know, what we could do with that stuff. And it became... You know, it's clearly a project that was worth doing, and it became really clear really fast that it wasn't going to look like what most people expected Paleo-Indian sites to look like. In fact, my, the first paper I wrote on the Allen site, I had submitted an abstract to a conference um, down in Kansas, and I sort of assumed that I was going to be able to talk about long-distance transport of raw materials and all the kinds of things that we think Paleo-Indians, many people think Paleo-Indians did. And, you know, first passed through the collection, there was an Indian long-distance transport of raw material. <laughs> <laughs> it, was all, it was all really local. I was like, wow, this is going to tell us something that we haven't talked about very much. And then uh, as I got into it, I got a phone call at, at my office at Nebraska from clearly a, an, old, you know, an elderly woman on the phone who it turns out was the widow of the man who excavated the site, Preston Holder. Her name was Joyce White. And she said that she had some stuff that I, that I might want. She heard, heard I was working on the site, and then she had some stuff that I might want. So she dropped the stuff I might want off at the anthro department in Lincoln. And um, turned out to be Preston Holder's original field notes and field maps, some artifacts, and all the documentation that we kind of needed to really make sense out of out of the site that had been in their garage for 50 years. <laughs> Never curated with the collections. And so, you know, it was just a sign from above or something. Every time I hear a story about that, it, it just, uh, or, or something akin to that, it, it, it's just, I just find it utterly remarkable. And and, and there, really there are two reasons why I wanted to uh, to do this interview. Uh, one was, was the fact that, that this was, this is an example of an archaeologist who has taken something that had been sitting on the shelves in a museum for well over 50 years and, and said, no, we're not going to let it just collect dust. We're, we're, we're going we're gonna to get something out of it. Um, and uh, I, I just think that's remarkable, and I, I think you should be honored for, for the, just the enormous amount of dedication that, that, that you put into it. But the other, reason, the other reason why I wanted to do this interview is, is because this part of Nebraska is part of my old stomping grounds. I've, I've been been all over this part of the world. You know, and in my mind, Medicine Creek was, uh, was, was, was a cutoff between two major highways in, in, in ancient times. If you leave the Allen site and uh, Red Smoke and, and Lime Creek and go northwest up, uh, travel upstream up, up Medicine Creek, uh, you can travel that for, for 30, uh, 35 miles. You can drink fresh water the entire way, sleep on soft ground. Um, and, and then when you're ready to, uh, to leave that, you can head straight north for, for about 25, 26 miles and reach the, uh, the, the, the Platte River. It makes it a, 
a very uh, easy, simple transit there. Uh, the Platte River m must have been an interstate highway in, in ancient times. And then south from the Allen site, uh, you could travel downstream on Madison uh, Creek for, for nine, ten miles to the Republican River, which, which also must have been a, an ancient highway in, in, in Paleo-Indian archaic times. What's your take on, on, on my view of that? I, I think it's exactly right. Um, I mean, archaeologists, I think we talk about rivers on the Great Plains kind of in two ways. You hear people talk about them as kind of a rungs of a ladder, you know, that you, that you can move from north to south from one river drainage to the other. Um, and if you're doing that, if you're going from the Republican to the Platte, going up Medicine Creek is, you know, is the way to go. Um, it's a resource-rich um, all the way up, and uh, like you said, it's a short trip over the over the divide up into the Platte. And then if you move from east to west, moving along the river valleys makes total sense. And I think that's probably part of the reason that people were there, you know, that, that this is a good transit place. When you look at the, the raw materials in the site, the little bits of stuff that we do find transported, um, you know, we get stuff from Wyoming, from eastern Wyoming in the collection. I mean, it's just a handful of flakes, but somehow they knew people who were up there. And that's, you know, up to the headwaters of Medicine Creek and then up the Platte River Valley, you can get, you, know, you end up close to Wyoming if you head up towards Ash Hollow. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look up at the Hell Gap site, there's pieces of, of Smoky Hill Jasper that could have come from Madison Creek. I mean, they're just indistinguishable from the rock that we get in the collection there. And there's not much, but just a couple of pieces. But somehow people were, were moving things and presumably themselves you know, along exactly those drainages. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Before we get to the Allen site, tell us more about uh, Lime Creek and, and, and Red Smoke. Those are, those are also very famous uh, sites in the history of, of Paleo-Indian uh, archaeology. Uh, and not a lot of people know much about them. Yeah, Mott's work is pretty much all that's been written about him. Um, it's interesting. He, you know, he published Spillon Creek, and that collection is actually quite small, just a couple hundred pieces. But I know that uh, Ruthann Knudsen, who's worked, she was married to Mott's son, archaeologist with the Feds for, for a long, long time, and Ruthann had planned to, to go back to, to Red Smoke um, and then saw how big it, the collection is. <laughs> Because they're just they sit right, right next to outcrops of raw material, and they're mostly workshops, mostly sort of places where people sat, and dug stone out of the ground, and, and worked it. And I think there's like 300,000 objects in the Red Smoke collection, um, you know, unmodified flakes and hundreds and hundreds of bifaces and things like that. It's just enormous, and a lot of it's still sitting in its original, um, original bags. You know, that, that Matt Davis put them in early 1950s, late 40s. So they've never been analyzed, I think, with the kind of modern, with the kind of modern techniques um, that they deserve. I had a student, uh, I had one master student who worked with the, the Lime Creek stuff and did a nice job. So we've got very comparable data from that, from the, for the collection from that site, but the kind of larger con context of spatial analysis and, and that kind of thing is, has just never been finished. 
Mm. And that, you know, that over the years, the more sites you accumulate that have been really carefully analyzed, the ones that haven't been tend to fall away because they're just, they remain kind of ambiguous. Mm. Well, I'm, the toughest question that I, that I think I'm going to ask uh, in the entire interview is, is going to be this one, because it is the great mystery uh, at uh, Lime Creek and, and Red Smoke. The, the adult-made projectile points that, that, that come out of Lime Creek and, and Red Smoke are have, from the moment that people saw photographs of them, they, some of them were recognizable, some of them were They've been proven to... It's been difficult to categorize them in the in the uh, planes projectile point chronology. You, you've discussed, even you have discussed the interview and in, in the book Paley, Wendy, and Lifeways of the Cody Complex. Uh, when I look at the uh, some of the drawings, at least one of the broken points from Red Smoke is very diagnostic, even to to late Dalton. Um, what what's your thinking on this? What what uh, who were the, the, the who were at uh, Lime Creek and Red Smoke? What uh, what are those characterize those projectile points for us? Yeah, I mean some of those things that they're beveled the way Dalton points are beveled, you know, to resharpen. Not all of them, but en- you know enough of them that people have talked about it for a while. Typologically, some of them, some of them are are indistinguishable from uh, things that get called plain view points sometimes. Other ones look just like Dalton points. Um, Ruthann just would say, has that in print, you know, she called that, that, that they are linked to Dalton. You know, she views it as a kind of a transition, the central plains is kind of a transition zone between more eastern ways of life and, and more high plains ways of life. And that makes sense. I mean, there are, there are some really distinctive things about the archaeology of all three sites that, that you don't see when you look out to the west. So, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we, there's a real artificial kind of a gap in what we know, and I say artificial in the sense that it doesn't reflect sort of ancient humans. And that's, we know a lot about the Western Plains, um, and, well, relative to, to what we know about other places, um, in part because this, a lot of the sites are kind of shallowly buried and, and not too hard to find by, by the standards of the Great Plains. But as soon as you move east, um, you start to get into much, much higher rates of sedimentation, um, which is why the, the Medicine Creek sites were as deeply buried as they are. Um, but that means we don't know very much. And then you get out farther to the east, and we suddenly get into stuff that we see is pretty different. We call it Dalton. And yet, in, so we've got this gap between the western plains and the, and the sort of areas that we wouldn't really call Great Plains at all, and, it, and they look really different, but there's no reason to think that, that in between that there wasn't a lot of contact and a lot of transition, sort of a gradual transition. It's just difficult to see because of this preservation problem. Mm-hmm. The, the other, it crosses the other way, too, where when you look at the, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, when you look at the dates that finally came out of Lime Creek and, and, and Red Smoke, uh, and and some of this stuff, the seems the, the diagnostic stuff seems to be um, late uh, Paleo Indian, mm-hmm. but but uh, but the Dalton stuff would have been you know would have been more trending towards early Paleo Indian, um, and then there's stuff that that looks like n- unlike anything else anywhere. Um, it's it's and and I think quite frankly I I think one of the reasons why 
a lot, all three of these sites, Lime Creek, Red Smoke, and, and Allen, the reason why it fell out of the press is nobody under, ever understood it until, until you jumped into the middle here. I think that's really true. It doesn't slot neatly into anybody's categories. Oh. No, it's not. We've got, we've got evidence of this very different kind of, kind of diet than you see in, in bison kills. We've got stone artifacts that, you know, aren't gloriously made. We've got some really nice ones, and we've got a lot that are just kind of very mundane and don't fit with what people think the Paleo-Indian period is supposed to look like. It just doesn't, you know, it, it just, it, it's not right. You know, it, it doesn't fit. And that kind of thing is, should tell us, should tell us pretty directly that, that you know, we're overgeneralizing about some important things. If we can't take, if you can't account for it, then, mm-hmm. you need, then that tells you where the holes in your, in your understanding are. Well, the, the unfinished and discarded point preforms at, at Lime Creek, that, and, and you've talked about the fact that both Lime Creek and, and, and Red Smoke were, seemed to be workshop areas. Those unfinished and discarded uh, preforms, that looks like beginning flint mapping. That looks like kids were, were learning how to, to do that stuff. Um, is that your take on it? Well, I, I actually talked about that, that in another, another publication. If you look at the Allen side stuff, right? Lime Creek and Red Smoke are both on the uh, on this Lime Creek, which is a tributary of, of Medicine Creek, and Allen is right on the main stem of Medicine Creek. And it, the Allen site really looks like a camp. I mean, it's got this amazing array of artifacts. It's got you know a couple of dozen fireplaces, uh, lots and lots of different kinds of animal foods, you know, lots of domestic activities. It looks like home. You know, it looks like a habitation. And the other two look like much more restricted kinds of activity areas, lots of flinapping, and not a whole lot else. Uh, if you look at the, if, if you compare Lime Creek and Allen directly, and look at that debris, at the finished projectile points and uh, uh, the broken preforms, the ones from the Allen site are quite variable and often pretty badly made, uh, more so than the ones from Lime Creek. And what, what I've thought is, I mean, we, we tend to focus on finished tools a lot. And if you look, for example, if you look at the archaeological literature, the, the model that we have for making Cody-style points, which is what they were making in that, that level at Line Creek where we get all the preforms, um, they're all modern, you know, the model that we have, the sort of visual model is the successful preforms, right? So a modern flint napper, documents each, step, each stage that, that his finished points went through before they were finished. We never see that. Right? Mm-hmm. Those, if you carry it right through to the end, we lose all that stuff. We might see it in the dev touch if you did a really intensive analysis, but you'll never see it in the, in a whole, in the whole object because it's transformed as you go through the reduction sequence. At a site like Lime Creek, we get the ones that didn't, get, didn't make it. Mm-hmm. You know, that for one reason or another, they didn't want it anymore. So um, they tossed them. But the ones that we see there, so, so we know that they're rejects. We know that they're flawed in some way. But, you know, any flinapper messes up sometimes, no matter how good they are. Mm-hmm. So when I'm, what, it looks, what it looks to me, if you, think, if you look at degree, the, the range of variation and some other ways of thinking about, you know, were people hammering on artifacts, you know, on edges that they couldn't get a flake off of, which is what you do if you don't, you know, don't really know how to flint that yet. 
He looks more like kids who are working down at the Allen site. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's and it makes some sense. We actually we have one deciduous child's tooth from the Allen. So <laughs> pretty confident that a kid, a kid was down there, you know. Um, mm-hmm. But what I what I think is that when people went out and worked at those quarries, they may have had children with them, but they were, you know, the work groups were mostly adults, um, and that when kids were really practicing, they were practicing at home. Mm-hmm. Down by the main drainage and doing, you know, on the edge, you know, the edge of the camping area or something like that. But I think uh-huh. we can actually, again, an accident of having these sites linked so closely together. You know, we can start to talk about how people, at least spatially, organize things like craft learning. You know, mm-hmm. how do they organize labor in these in these small encampments? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's just exciting. It's electrifying to uh, you know to hear a description. You know, it's, it's just it's just amazing what we're talking about. So the Allen site was a campsite. Um, give us some indication or 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 some parameters as to as to when that camp, how often it happened, how you know what what. Uh, was it yearly, seasonally, every five years? You know, do we have any idea who was there? That type of thing. Um, I'd like. I mean, I want to say it was families. Uh, I said we've got deciduous tooth. That's pretty good evidence that there was a child there. I mean, to be honest, it's hard. You know, it's hard to tell exactly the social, the kinds of social units who camped there. It's one of the things that. We tend to talk about pretty vaguely, um, but the diversity of stuff that we see there makes it real clear that that there was this huge array of of processing animals, and you know they were, they were taking fish out of the creek, they were collecting mussels out of the creek, which are you know, things like that, are, and small animals in the diet are often things that children do. Um, they were working all kinds of materials. We have tools that have to have been used on leather and things like that. Um, you know, beyond, way beyond hunting. So there's, you know, the diversity of stuff and the diversity of, of activities is what we'd expect from family camps. We know they came back there over and over again. I mean, the sediment was deposited continuously from just after 11,000 years ago to, you know, for thousands of years. The archaeology kind of runs out around 7,500 or 8,000 years ago. But um, in between those times... There aren't any sterile levels in the site. And one of the strangest things, as we were in the midst of all this analysis, the strangest things that we saw was that because they, because we had this data that Joyce White passed along um, and some other records that the museum did have, we were able to map out the distribution of artifacts in the different levels of the site. And from the beginning of that occupation right to the end, the trash heaps, that is the, we'd find these concentrations of artifacts that were just like hundreds of flakes in a single five-foot excavation square, nothing in the square next to it. So really clear concentrations. And the location of those concentrations stayed roughly the same for about 3,000 years, mm. which was just crazy. I mean, there's, it doesn't make any sense at all, um, except unless they, were, unless they stayed visible over time. And if you think about uh, the rate of that sediment accumulation over that same period of time, it would have taken, I don't know, 
50 or 100 years for a track tape to be hidden. And if you look at uh, sort of common patterns of human behavior, you know, if, if you go into a camp, and we do this today, if you're in a camping area, you know, we try, people tend to accumulate trash in the same places. Mm-hmm. And so that was what, uh, I don't know how old you are, but if you, uh, if you remember Arlo Guthrie and the uh, Alice's Restaurant, mm-hmm. was about the, what, what some archaeologists call the Arlo Guthrie trash magnet effect, you know. Old garbage collects new, attracts new garbage. Mm-hmm. And in that case, I think, they have, I think that explains the pattern we've got at the Allen site, is that people are, you know, where am I going to dump all these flakes? Well, let's dump them on the flakes that we can see over there. And so the trash gets stay in roughly the same place. And what that says is that people were coming back a lot, um, pretty regularly. And I don't know that I can say that they were coming back every single year, but they were certainly coming back when the trash... Um, from a previous year was still visible to them. And that's a, that's a really biologically active habitat, right? There's a lot of water, they, lots of plants grow. We, all of the paleoenvironmental information we've got says that it had a rich understory of grasses and shrubbery and stuff. So they, had, they have to have been there, assuming that I'm right about them reusing these trash heaps. They can't have been obscured by the brush and the grass has grown up a bit. So, I mean, I think we're talking every few years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Prove that. I mean, I think it, that explains all the data that we've got. Mm-hmm. So it's a really regularly used place. And, and that ties into that being a, kind of a cutoff between two major highways where, where if people were moving, that's just the, instead of going cross-country and, and uh, sleeping on hard, dry ground for for 40 or 50 miles, why not? Why don't we just go up uh, Medicine Creek and stay on the water and maybe do some deer and antelope hunting along the way? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And get shade in the summer and it's just mm-hmm. a good place to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, fresh wa- uh, freshwater mussels. Uh, there are two chapters of the book uh, were found at uh, the Allen site. Lots of analysis went in uh, went into that. Uh, it appears that they were utilized as food uh, uh, by Paleo-Indians at the Allen, at Allen site. Tell us the significance of this. It, assuming that, they, that, they, that the archaeologists saved all of it, and they, they seem to have saved every bit of it that they found, it was a, you know, it was a tiny part of the diet. But the idea of you know, Paleo-Indians who are supposed to be these specialized big game hunters you know, wading out to the creek and, and getting freshwater mussels to eat, it just doesn't fit with what what we expect to see them doing, right? I mean, we expect people who do that kind of thing to be generalist kinds of hunter-gatherers. You know, there's not a lot of food in any one muscle, um, so they need to gather quite a few to make a meal versus, you know, killing one bison or killing one deer. And so mm-hmm. it was a real surprise to find that stuff because it just doesn't fit our stereotype at all. You know, sort of thing kids might do, um, but you just never see that in sites of this age. The mussels themselves told us a couple of really important things. One is that you can tell when they were harvesting them, what time of year they were harvesting them, because the, they grow actively in the warm season, and you can pick out those growth rings. And so the ones that we could get the, that, that information from were all warm suit. So it tells us a little bit about when, at least some of the time, the time of year of at least some of the occupations. And the other thing is that, that we could tell that this, what the stream was like. So we could see that there's a really that 
you know, the, the different species of mussels have different habitat requirements. And the ones mm-hmm. that we see in there were, you know, were big kind of clear water, backwater um, ponds along a pretty active stream. So it helped us to see the, the local environment in a, a lot more detail. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, it was this, this sort of behavioral surprise, and on the other hand, it was this really fortunate source of information. Well, as far as I know, it's it's the earliest use of freshwater mussels in, in in the interior part of the country anywhere, isn't it? As far as I know, yeah. We had to the, the analyst who was working on it, you know, ended up looking finding stuff that was thousands of years later for his comparative work. Like, you know, there wasn't anything that was that early. Mm-hmm. But that you know it, that is also an artifact, probably probably of what we're able to see. Mm-hmm. Now, again, how deeply buried? There have to be other sites like this out there, and we just have found. Mm-hmm. Well, human occupation at the Allen site began at the tail end of the of the Younger Dryas, continues through the the early part of the Altothermal, where where things are are now heating up, and then. But it looks like it gets gets terminated by this eight point two kiloyear event. Is 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 that correct? Is is the eight point whatever happened that at 8,200 years ago, uh, that, that seems to bring a halt to the Allen side, or, or whatever. It, it, I, I won't characterize it beyond that, but is, am I even close there? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's basically the timing of the occupation, yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of later stuff in the drainage, but, um, but yeah, it doesn't seem to have been used much anymore. There are, there are certainly other sites on the central plains of, uh, that are in that early archaic out-thermal kind of period. But definitely in the area to from Mississippi Creek to the west, you know, the human population definitely seems to have thin. Yeah. Okay. That, other places, other places were good places to be, but no, not so much in the west. And one of the reasons that that Medicine Creek may have become somewhat less attractive was that, you know, the sites preserved there because the sediment was accumulating. Um, and as that process continues, once it gets deep enough, it buries all the rock that people are there for. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you've got a drainage that's, that's water all the way and, you know, shade and that kind of a thing, the locate, you know, that means that the whole drainage has the same kind of resources. And I think one of the things that pulled people into the lower parts of Medicine Creek was that the creek had eroded down into the bedrock and exposed that, that Smoky Hill Jasper. Mm-hmm. That we find, you know, just fistfuls of on these sites. Um, mm-hmm. and once the sediments had accumulated deeply enough, that you, those outcrops, they, they basically, from a human perspective, don't exist anymore because you can't see them. You can't find mm-hmm. the rock. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing that I think drew folks into the, the specific places. And once that's gone, they may not have needed to be there anymore. You have to find another place. Mm-hmm. What did Southwest Nebraska look like when, when, when the first people got there, you know, the climate, the vegetation, and, and, and how did that change over, over time? The, it depends a little bit on when you think people got there. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Continuously contested. Um, it's in a funny kind of a way, the area around Medicine Creek, look, without the lake um, that's there today, looked not too different than, than what you see with the different suite of trees. And the reason I say it's, it's, it, there's some irony in that, because the lake has created this raised water table that supports a lot of trees um, that weren't there, which you see pictures of the area prior to the construction of the lake. It's a much more treeless landscape. 
even down in the drainages. So along all the sort of floodplains of the, the Republican and the and Minnesota Creek itself, you know, you would have seen a pretty rich understory of trees and, and brush close to water. You'd see a lot of deciduous trees. We, there's, we've got evidence of species of trees that today grow in eastern Nebraska um, all the way out you know, in, in the southwestern part of the state 10, 12, 13,000 years ago. Um, you get back 18, 20,000 years with that evidence of spruce that you don't see growing you know, out on the drainages of the Great Plains these days um, that did at the end of the, of the Pleistocene. And as the climate started to shift then after the Younger Dryads, and you'd see this progressive warming and drying. And we can see that in grass phytoliths and pollen and that kind of thing. And people see this kind of thing all over the Great Plains. So that, that almost closed canopy vegetation along the drainages would have thinned um, over time as things dried out. The uplands would have, would have shifted from a, a really rich grassland to a much drier kind of a short grass step kind of environment, uh, much more much more similar to what we see today. And then as you get past about 8,200, um, you start to get into a increasingly even drier than, than what you would get today, much more long-term drought conditions. Mm. You just, uh, you've got to know that there's a, there's a massive bison bone bed, or probably more than one, somewhere up or down uh, Medicine Creek. I mean, given, given what Cooper's Bluff, or uh, the Cooper site and Jake's Bluff looks like uh, the same kind of setup would would uh, be available right there on Medicine Creek. It, in my mind, it, it, it hasn't been discovered yet, but it's got to be there, doesn't it? I I think so. <laughs> you know, I mean, what we see is is not you know the the sites there don't. I, I don't think you can link them convincingly to large scale bison hunting, but those same people, you know, they just did different things in different times and places. Mm-hmm. And with all of that eroded sediment, there are little buried box canyons and things like that that that, of that that have to have been of the right age and would have been perfect traps for those animals. Yeah, yeah you're right. If, you, if you're just not there at the right time, you don't see it. Uh, mm-hmm. So someday somebody will find it. Mm-hmm. You know that rough cedar break country, it's northwest of, of, of the Allen site. It's, it's just east of North Platte. Uh, South of the interstate, but it's uh, it's 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 a completely it looks completely different than than anything else you know in the in the in the in the region really. What what's that? What's I used to I used to run around there around in there all the time. What is that about? Is is that is that the way it used to look, or is that new? What what is that? There's that that's it's beautiful country, isn't it? There's been huge changes in all of that uh, that landscape. Partly when they put the railroad in, uh, they had to put you know when you build a railroad, you need lots of wood um, for the railroad ties, and, and they cut back in the you know mid late 1800s. They did a lot of cutting in there, um, so a lot of what the vegetation that you see is regrowth since then. So I'm not sure that that the, that the tree the same kinds of trees would be there in the same Frequencies um, prior to that time. That's but that 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 kind of change, I think, is something we don't know that much about. All the archaeology, you know, we we were it was pretty easy for us to to work on the sites that we worked at, where we, you know, the work had been done initially for dam construction, right, for that for that reservoir, mm-hmm. and uh, 
we were able to get access back to the site, nothing else, like because you said it's gone. But the other ones, you know, to do paleoenvironmental sampling and stratigraphic work and things like that, because it's all federal land. Mm-hmm. That you know, give us permission to go in and to take our samples and that kind of thing. Once you get away from there, it's all private land, and archaeologists haven't worked on along that creek north of the reservoir, I think, since the 1930s, 1940s. <laughs> Are you there every summer? I mean, you've got to be. I've been up, actually, I've been working up near Shadron these days, the last eight or nine years, mm-hmm. up on the Pine Ridge on a different mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. But we would go back, we went back every year for a few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just a nice place to go. Mm-hmm. Well, tell us what Lois is, and, and uh, this is kind of a funny question, but it was, but it, was any of that found at Allen? The sediment there is all redeposited less. I mean, less is just this really fine-grained, wind-blown sediment. And what you find down in the drainages, I mean, there's plenty of less. I mean, Nebraska's got lots of less in the sand hills. And, you know, it's this amazing terrain people on I-80 don't ever see. Um, mm-hmm. What you get in that drainage, though, is almost entirely waterland. So the, the deeper the deeper sediment in there is actually laid down by the creek itself, um, and you know, plant in overbank floods and that kind of thing. And once the the terraces that contain the site that, that the archaeology is in got raised up above the floodplain level of the creek, then you start to see um, sediment that's washing down in from above. So instead of being instead of coming up out of the creek, it washes down over the edge of the valley. Um, but it all, it's all less-sized particles. Everything in is, uh, every object that's not, that's not, you know, that's big enough to see is basically an artifact when you're digging it and stuff. Hmm. One, of the, one of the most amazing things about the Allen site was just how deep it was. Um, I posted a photograph of uh, the original Allen site uh, excavation on Arkell the other day, and, and uh, we had... Uh, archaeologists from as far away as Italy, just absolutely astounded by the depth yeah. that, that that was. Tell, tell us about that. Yeah, the Allen site was 25 feet down. Um, the Lime Creek site was 60 feet down. There were these photographs um, of Matt Davis's crew. I don't think it's Matt that was on these on these um, that was suspended, but they had actual people hanging, sitting on planks, hanging from the top of the of the cut bank, you know, 30 feet down, 30 feet off the ground, <laughs> doing this stratigraphy. Um, what had happened is that sort of in the, towards the late Ice Age, the, the Medicine Creek Valley got very, very deeply incised. And then just around the end of the Ice Age, it started to accumulate, you know, it shifted from erosion to sedimentation. And as you get into that outstromal period, and, you know, the last, after about 8,000 years ago, the sediment accumulated into these just enormous depths. And it wasn't until they had a huge flood in 46 and 47 that exposed, you know, cut these nice clean exposures did a couple of million dollars worth of damage downstream, but it was good for the archaeology anyway. Mm-hmm. And they started to see hearths and artifact concentrations and animal bone down at the base of these sites. And it was, I mean, at the time, it was huge. Um, you know, this was just a couple of decades after 
the false insights had shown that there were people here in the Ice Age, people in North America in the Ice Age. Um, you know, this, back in the 30s, you've got people doing work at Blackwater Draw, people are starting to understand that Clovis and Folsom aren't the same thing, and suddenly there are these sites in Nebraska that were 60 feet down. Mm-hmm. And we was in Time and Newsweek, and they were talking about them as the oldest sites in the Americas, which you know they weren't then and they aren't now, but um, it got huge attention. And supported, I mean, that was one of the reasons that they, that they did as much work out there as they did, because they thought they were going to hit this incredibly ancient thing, um, which it turned out to be. But they were using, we're not, you know, we're not allowed to do this kind of thing anymore, but they were using dynamite and bulldozers. In some cases, they would drill down and, bla- and blast, and then they were running bulldozers 24 hours a day for a week to try and get enough, you know, to open up an area that they could dig in. From from the photographs, you almost had to use heavy equipment. I mean, it, it's just absolutely unbelievable how much uh, overburden there was. Oh, yeah, the amount of sediment that they moved is just astonishing. And at Lion Creek, in fact, this Mott used to, there's all these sort of hidden stories about this work. Mott knew that there was archaeology in, in upper levels at Lion Creek, and um, that the only way to get down to the lower levels was to destroy it, that they didn't have time to actually excavate through all the sites. And so he got, he brought in people uh, like Waldo Wadel, the great, great Plains archaeologist, uh, and, and got them to agree that, that the, the deep stuff was so important that it was worth sacrificing some of the upper stuff. Because mm. they just, it, you couldn't excavate through it. Because it was, you know, it was just too much, there was too much stuff to move and not enough time to move it. The the Bureau of Reclamation was trying to build a dam right right yeah. there on mm-hmm. yeah 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 it's got, I mean it's up now the Lime Creek it's amazing to look at those pictures of Lime Creek because the cut bank at the site now um, the the water runs right up to the cut bank and it you know with enough there's been enough sort of slope wash and that kind of thing that most of the the depth of it is you can't tell now how deeply buried it was mm. Mm. going back to the Allen site. What was the spatial arrangement of the actual campsite? How how large of an area were people camping in, and and was it all the way flat, or was it, you know, it's, it's a, one of the the wonderful, actually, the truly wonderful thing about Joyce White calling me that day and bringing the stuff to the to the museum is that the the notebooks that she brought included what they called the engineering notebook, which is where they kept all their transit notes. And they actually did point plot artifacts. And they, they took depths from, for some of the, strat, the strata, and especially the, the, there's a buried soil that um, is at the base of the site, and then a second buried soil that's a couple of feet above. And they measured the depths of that soil across the, those two soils, across the excavation area. And so you can take those depths and map the landform that people lived on. Take the point plotted artifacts and add those in. Um, and so we can see that, that you know, the, the nature of the slope. And it was a nice, gentle terrace surface just above the stream. So it was a, you know, it would have been a great campsite and you add in some shape and it's a, you know, a lovely place to live. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it was a, you know, comfortable place close to water. Everything that we know about it though says that the excavation area was probably right back against the edge of the, the back edge of the floodplain, the upslope edge of the floodplain, of the terrace, excuse me, of the floodplain. Um, 
the sediment that redeposited lust that, that forms the landscape there cuts these straight banks as it erodes. I mean, absolutely vertical. And there's, we know enough about the stratigraphic setting of the site that it looks like they were right up, they, were, they had to have been digging pretty close to an ancient cut bank like that. Oh. Which means that I think what, the, what was going on is that it was the back edge of the site where they were, people were, you know, dumping the trash and there's fireplaces there, so we know they were doing other things, but I think it was probably the edge of the occupation area, not the center of it. And mm -hmm. it's interesting, you know, archaeologists, we dig where we can see stuff, uh, and where we see lots of stuff is almost always the trash heap. So we end up not necessarily digging places people live, but digging places that were next door to it, kind of where they lived, where they dumped the trash. Mm -hmm. So I suspect that the actual occupation area is much bigger than what you can see in the archaeology, but that was also the closer you get to the stream, the more erosion there's been. Right. So that same that same uh, flood that exposed the site in the cut bank also made it, you know, also took away whatever was downslope. So mm -hmm. we'll never see the full extent. Mm -hmm. We've talked about um, the fact that that there's this real distinct evidence of uh, of kids flint napping at the yep. at the camp at the campsite at Allen. Now, is is that fact, is, or, or is that, um, how do I phrase this here? Um, the, the fact that kids were, were flint napping, they had to learn, they had to, I mean, they were not born with the inherent ability to, to make a perfect whatever point. They had, they had to learn it some way. Is, is that, is, is that concept widely Known and acknowledged and factored into in in Paleo Indian or North American archaeology in general. I mean, are people thinking about that? Does that make sense? Uh, yeah. No, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, there's more. That's more than one question with different answers. The, answer, the first answer is yes. I think everybody knows who thinks about it at all that you have to learn to do this. And then, and there's enough stuff in the literature that, that we all know that it takes a long time to be really good. Um, you can't just, you don't hand a five-year-old, um, you know, a, rock, a couple of rocks and say, go make some flakes, right? They're not strong enough, they're not coordinated enough. And when you look at, at sort of indigenous learning, not the kind of learning that we do, you know, where we're sort of learning it as a, for fun, you know, when people are actually learning it as a skill that they need, you know, it's sort of just, it's sort of middle school age. Kids start start to be trained in it because um, that's when you're really strong enough to fracture the rock because mm -hmm. you got to hit it pretty hard. Right. So there's a period in your life, sort of through just preteen up to teenagers age, where your people would have been accumulating the skill. Um, and everybody kind of knows that, right? So nobody, there's no archaeologist who, you, who I think would answer that question say no, it doesn't matter. At the same time. Everybody analyzes all of the, the lithic assemblages kind of as one thing. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly right. I was hoping you know. Could. I mean, and we know that this is the wonderful thing about stone about stone artifacts is that they never go away. You know? So that means that every flake, pretty much that's ever been struck in the history of the world, whether it was the first flake struck by a nine-year-old, you know, the first time, 
or the last strike like struck by a master, a spectacularly talented stoneworker, um, they're all in the world. And, and we, you know, um, virtually nobody takes that into account when we're, when we do our work. We tried to do it some, you know, at the Allen site, um, by trying to sort of do a comparative study between Allen and Lime Creek and make the case that we are looking at, in some cases, at, at craft learning. Um, and there are a few other people who are talking about this, but really, um, when you think about the fact that, that we all must handle things that kids make all the time, um, the kids made all the time, we really should think about it a lot more than we do. But, but in, in some ways, you, and this is not a criticism, but, but you have to admit, in some ways, you, you kind of, you, you, you discussed it thoroughly at Allen in, in, in the book, and, and you point out, boy, there's a lot of good-looking but broken uh, projectile points there at the campsite, but then there's a lot of rough-looking, kind of unbroken stuff that's still there that kind of looked like kids were doing it. But, but, but uh, it's almost like, <laughs> I don't want to get you in trouble, it was almost like you were being gentle. <laughs> like, hey, everybody, let's pay attention to this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I argue with people a lot, I think. Um, part of it goes back to this that, that shift that, that I mentioned in kinds of sites that have occupied archaeological attention. Um, as long as we dig the kill sites, right? as long as we dig bone beds you know, with dozens or hundreds of bison, what we're going to see is, in almost every case, is the, are the products of really skilled and experienced flint nappers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, if you look at the projector point assemblages, from the, which is pretty much all you get from those sites, I mean, that's, there's breathtaking. I mean, that's a big reason why people like paleontic archaeology. We go to conferences and show all the cool pictures of the spear mm-hmm. points that we have. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, it is just cool. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But those are the things that, that adults are making, you know, and probably the most skilled adults. Um, you have to get into sites like the outside to see the other stuff, I think. You know, to see people practicing and learning. You know, maybe making their first spear to go out and try and hunt some small animal on their own, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So you have to have the opportunity to think about it. And I, you know, that was one of the nice things about the outside. But yeah, I mean, it's, when, once you start to ask that question, oh, the world becomes a much more complicated place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When looking at lithic technology, the, the wild cards are always material quality and, and, and heat treatment. The, the local stuff that they were getting out at Red Smoke... Uh, was it Red Smoke or Lime Creek was the quarry? Both. 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 Right. Yeah, both. Yeah. Was that good stuff? Did it need to be heat treated? Um, it, it is good stuff. It's quite variable. The best of it is really good. Um, you know, and it grades right down to stuff that's just barely different from the chalk. So, you know, you had to sort of, you had to look around. And it occurs often in these nodules where the outside is is pretty low grade and the center of it is pretty high grade so there can be some work you know getting to the good stuff and even when you when you pull it out of the ground. One of the cool things about it is that if you do heat it up it turns bright red. Mm. It's because you know, it's got a pretty high iron content. That's what gives it the reddish yellowish kind of colors. Um, and there's almost none of that in the collection. All the all of the stuff that we can tell was exposed to heat was exposed to heat accidentally. Mm. Um, so they weren't heat treated. 
for whatever reason. You know, presumably they, you know, they could get stuff that they thought was good enough without having to do that. Mm-hmm. But it, hmm. I mean, that's one. I think one of the reasons that, that you get so much stuff. That, I mean, there's, I guess, the three hundred thousand or so objects at, at a place like Red Smoke. Um, I think that's partly the result of people just working away with the stuff they don't want. You know, stuff that they're left with the stuff that they do. Mm-hmm. Lots of, uh, and when you see it, you know it immediately. The, the Paleo Indian uh, blades off a of cores, struck blades off a of cores, and, and big flakes. Uh, was that present at uh, Allen? We have, we don't see any blade technology there. It's the, I mean, there, you get blades in Clovis sites mostly, and then you get them again much later. Um, you get actually there. There's a really well developed um, blade technology in Nebraska in uh, Plains Village times, such Plains tradition sites. Mm-hmm. Uh, and not as much in between. We've, we've got this, a very similar kind of a core reduction strategy where you're working from a single platform and striking overlapping flakes around the edge, which is, you know, if you strike long narrow flakes, you know, you get prismatic blades. So they're, they're, same, they're using the same idea to make, uh, to make blanks and tools. But um, they don't seem to be making blades. They're they're shorter and wider, and it mm-hmm. may just be a function of the raw material. You know, it's good, but it's not perfect. You know? mm-hmm. and, I, and I think they might have had trouble making good blades on a consistent basis. But mm-hmm. what was the funnel evidence at at Allen? Amazingly diverse. I mean, we get bison, especially in the lower levels. Um, deer and antelope become more common when you get past about um, 10,000 years ago. We have rabbits, um, we have prairie dogs, there's fish and mussel. Um, I mean, they were taking this incredible array of the animals. It's a little hard sometimes to tell which ones just died in the site, uh, which ones are there because uh, people brought them in, but there's no question that they were taking everything from prairie dog size up. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got burned bone and butcher marks and things like that. And, and over time, you know, we tend to, you know, the stereotype is bison hunting, but that, that's kind of an artifact of digging lots of bison kill sites. Over time, they seem to have hunted bison less and less and hunted antelope and deer more and more um, and shifted to some other smaller species that you would find right along the drain rather than going out onto the upper. Mm-hmm. Probably, I'm, my best guess is they're reacting to changing climate and hunting close to home. Mm. So it's it's a nice picture of this kind of different aspect of Paleo Indian diet, but it also lets us really talk about about processes change that you can't see in, in some other side. Lots of very interesting needles and uh, awls. The awls are are suspiciously large, but but then some small smaller awls found at the Allen side. What do you what do you suspect that the, those indicate that that because that that seems to be pretty important. Uh, yeah, we got 120 or 125 bone tools in general. Um, I mean, clearly, craft work is a big deal. You know, there's stitching bags and clothing and maybe tents. Um, one of the people who reviewed the volume actually pointed out. That a lot of those kinds of tools are the, are the tools that you use not just in, in leather working, but in things like making nets uh, and traps and things like that. So that there's a lot of things that could have been could have involved portage and involved 
trapping, especially the smaller animals, a whole domains of technology that we just don't see. Um, there is one huge, out of a dry cave in Wyoming, it's at about, just about 8,000 years old, there's a huge net um, from a Paleo-Indian site. And, you know, you need the technology to make that kind. You need the knowledge, but you need the tools to manufacture things like that. And those mm-hmm. bone tools are just the kinds of things that, that people would use for that kind of activity. Mm-hmm. So I, there's a, I don't know, there's a master's thesis for somebody who can really figure out what those tools were used for someday. Well, to, to me, it, it sure points out that, again, uh, it, it brings us right back to this was a family campsite. There were men, there were women, there were children. I mean, this, this, this is, this is a, a beautiful time capsule where, where we can see families at, at, at work here. Yeah, I mean, that's what I think. Like, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to prove those kinds of, you know, we, we tend to make a lot of assumptions about, you know, who hunts and who doesn't and that kind of thing that, that we might do well to, to be careful about. But I, I can't make any sense out of sight without visualizing families living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and again, not to put too fine a point on it, uh, until you pull this stuff, all this stuff out of boxes that have been in there for 50 plus years, uh, no one would have ever known about it. No one, no, we would have no idea about any of this. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, when we got into it first, we didn't know what we were going to find. Huh. And I was surprised very quickly. You know, but there is, I mean, you could... You could do archaeology for the rest of, I mean, hundreds of people could do archaeology for the rest of their lives and never, never excavate a site um, and discover new things because there's so much stuff in storage. You know, things that were really carefully analyzed by the standards of the time that they were excavated, you know, and those standards get higher and higher every, you know, every year just about. There's things now that, there's this wonderful study that a woman down at Oklahoma did um, looking at the bone chemistry of bison over time through the Paleo-Indian period and showing that the, the, the behavior of the bison, that the range that they were living on changed over time and that it changed in different ways on the southern plains than it did on the northern plains. So nobody, you know, before KC did that, um, you know, nobody had done it. And 10 or 20 years ago, it would never have occurred to anybody to do that. We wouldn't have had the technology or known how to use the technology. So, you know, there's, you can go back to even well-studied collections, let alone totally unstudied collections like the Allen site, and, and learn just incredibly new things without excavating. And there's a kind of a moral imperative to doing that for us because we, you know, spend a lot of money digging stuff up. Like, oh, the world, finding something out about it after it comes out of the ground. Andy Hemmings bangs that drum every single day. He- yeah. Uh, I asked him a question the other day about you know what what would you uh, if you had if you had anything in the world to do and you know and he, he didn't hesitate he said I'd go back to all of the the, the collections that, that that we know about and and uh, I think there's a low, lot of low hanging fruit in there that that we really need to to uh, you know he, he thinks that there's absolutely fantastic things in the, in the Clovis assemblage that that's sitting in cardboard boxes that that people have forgotten about yeah yeah. And that's true for, I think, for every period of time, every state, you know, every country in the world, every state in the Union, uh, there's things like that. 
We're looking at the, the, the Allen site, looking at it after the, the book's published. Um, a lot of people worked on it. There were 11 different contributors of this, uh, of this book and probably dozens of, of people behind the scenes on top of that. What can you tell us about the, the, the Paleo-Indian people that, 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 that camp there? I mean, what, what, what's, the, what, what's the flavor that you get? And, and not necessarily, don't, don't limit it to, to what you can scientifically prove. Just, just give, me your, give me the heart of hearts as, as to who are the people that were camping at the Allen site. What were they like? I mean, I, I tend to think of them, I mean, we, we tend to view the, the Paleo-Indian period as something really, really different from everything we see afterwards. You know? and, and, and it stands in, in contrast, especially to recent Native people in North America. And I, I think, you know, the Allen site shows us that that's not so true. Um, certainly was different than things, than time, than more recent times, but when I think of the people who live there, I mean, I visualize people who lived, you know, who lived locally, everything, virtually everything in the site is accessible within, you know, a day's walk of the Allen site. They didn't have to travel very far. I mean, they certainly traveled. They didn't live there all the time. But, but not the scale of movement that people have suggested. And I think they probably spend most of their lives in, in fairly small family groups, you know, two or three families traveling together, and only now and then being around a whole lot of other people. Mm-hmm. Go on. I'm, I'm, this is fascinating stuff, and and uh, I mean, this is I mean, this is this is the reason why. <laughs> uh, this is the reason why I do these interviews is to hear this per, to, to to hear this perspective. Uh, uh, because it's all over the map. I mean, you know, we we, we really don't know, and and uh, any any time that we get an opportunity to to get a different perspective, I think is good. So just keep going. Yeah, I mean, I I see kids going out into the drainage to you know trap small animals and collect rock and you know whatever you know with, is within their capacity to do, and, and adults traveling up and down the drainage and out onto the uplands. We don't know much about plant food use, but we know they must have collected things. I mean, there's hackberry seeds in the collection that burned, but I think they're all natural. But I mean, there were plenty of edible kind of plants in the in the vicinity, uh, and people would have been gathering those. We have grinding stones, you know, and both monos and matates from the site. Very portable ones, you know, they're thin and easy to transport, so they're not big giant ones that we think of in the American Southwest, but they're grinding things, and probably plant foods, plant seeds are, are part of the deal. We don't see that at very many Paleo-Indian sites. So it, it's a sort of a, I mean, it would be a hard life by our perspectives, for sure, but I think you know, everything that we see in the site tells us that they were really good at it. Hmm. Well, let's have some fun. So, in a hypothetical situation, a billionaire philanthropist hears this interview. And uh, he calls you up, and he says, all right, I'm willing to give you a million dollars with one mandate. Three years from now, I want you to tell me three new exciting things about the Paleo-Indians on the plane. You take that money, and what kind of projects would you pursue? Yeah, I would take the money, sure. And actually, you know, there was a guy like that. He didn't call me. He called some other people. Um, I, would, I would go back to existing collections, and I would do the kind of work that this woman down in Oklahoma was doing. I would get 
you know, people to really look in detail at hunting practices and, you know, to try and get how people are harvesting these different animals over time. Because I think that, that patterns of, of temporal change um, in these kinds of practices are really important. So that's definitely one of the things that I would, that I would get somebody to look at. And actually, to, to really document in detail um, the way the patterns of raw material use that have been really central to the way we thought about Paleo-Indian archaeology. People have, trust me nuts, um, people will look at just the spear points. And, you know, Paleo-Indian spear points are very often made from stone that, that occurs naturally a long, long way from the place we find the points. Somebody goes, well, look, they must have walked all that way. You know, they must have, you know, they were covering these immense areas. And if you look at sites like Allen, and not, and not just Allen, but that's the best case, I think. You know, the, the spear points, you know, there's like nine of them, so there's not many, but there's non-local material represented in those points. But if you look at every other category of, of, of flake stone artifact, it's all local stuff. And if the story that it tells is really different than the story that you tell just by looking at the points. And I think you could go, you could spend some money um, really carefully documenting those kinds of patterns for large numbers of sites over the Great Plains. And you'd really be able to map out um, the connections that you see in which ones involve mobility and which ones involve something else, trade or something else. That's only two things, isn't it? <laughs> well, but yeah, I think I think that'd keep you. Uh, yeah, that would keep you busy for a while. That'd keep you busy. If you uh, you go into a, a secondhand store, you buy a really cool looking antique bottle and you rub it. A, a genie appears, and that genie is willing to grant you the answers, the absolute scientific answers, to three questions about the Paleo Indian people of of North America. What are the three questions? I'd, I would love to know um, why they value flint mapping so much. What's the social value in that? Because, the, you know, a lot of what they made was just the everyday mundane, easy stuff to do, but, but over and over and over again, they would just made things gratuitously nicely. You know, I mean, the, the amount of skill that it requires to make a classic Paleo-Indian spear point. Uh, it's just breathtaking, you know, and, and there has to they, they have to put a value on that, that that went beyond just, you know, it being a weapon tip. And I'd love to know exactly what that, what that was. Um, you know, what's the social meaning of that? I'd really love to know about all the things they did that, that involved... Uh, non-perishable materials. Like, what does, what does Paleo-Indian art look like on animal scans? Because we devote so much time. I mean, there's an aesthetic. There's clearly an aesthetic to flint mapping during this period of time. And it would be wonderful to be able to tell something about that aesthetic beyond just rocks. Mm-hmm. Um, so those, that's, those would be, I think those, those would be just personally really interesting. And, you know, I've argued in print um, more than once about how big the territory was that they lived in. You know, we should just get a hard answer to that. If the genie could give it to us, that would be great. Mm-hmm. 
the, the same genie offers to trans transport you back in time uh, to any period in time. You get to spend three years uh, in the past. You get to pick the date. Would you go? And, and, and if so, uh, would, what date would you pick to go back in time in? I, yeah, I would. I, I had a actually I had a major professor when I was in graduate school who used to say that you know, no real archaeologist would want a time machine because then we wouldn't be archaeologists anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but I would go. But having spent all this time talking with you about the Paleo-Indian period, I would go to AD thirteen hundred uh, because that that moment right in that right about. Seven eight hundred years ago, AD thirteen hundred, um, just transformed Native North America and the Great Plains. Huge, huge population movements and creation of, I think, completely new social groups. And it would just be cool to see that happen. See mm -hmm. that in the words. Mm -hmm. hmm. <laughs> the question that I talked about uh, about your you're working on a paper. Uh, you haven't submitted it yet, I don't, I don't think, but, but the, you, the question that you, you're asking there is, how different was Paleo-Indian large-scale bison hunting from post-Paleo-Indian large-scale bison hunting? And, and when, I, when I read that question, I, 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 was, I, I started to laugh because when, when you look at the mobility and, and, and the abilities of, of somebody like the Bassant people and, and compare them to the Folsom people, you know, that made me, I want to hear this answer. Um, there is virtually no change in hunting patterns um, from Paleo-Indian times almost up to the present, except from Wyoming, Montana, um, up into the Canadian plain. There's a little bit of change, but not much of anything. And it's only um, starting just before percent times that you see the, the, this huge transformation uh, in sophistication and scale of bison hunting. So that people start using cliff jumps and intensive processing, building all those, uh, those drive lines and things like that. Mm -hmm. And that's just about 2,000, 2,500 years ago that that takes off. And, but it only takes off in that part of the plains. And that is profoundly different from Paleo-Indian times, right? Paleo-Indian hunters were really good at hunting bison. But they would take, you know, a herd and they'd drive them into a, a sand dune or they'd drive them into an arroyo like Jake's Bluff and that kind of thing. And, and that's a great way to hunt and they would get you know, everything they needed from that. And people, but people did that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years and supplied mostly themselves, I think. That's not just only true, but that's, that's a big part of it. But these Northern Plains folks became what some people have called industrial kinds of bison hunters. Um, and they were hunting for themselves, but they were hunting for their neighbors, too. Mm -hmm. And I, they were part of these trade networks that developed in North America um, during what we call woodland times. And they, you know, the networks spanned in one way or another, you know, the Atlantic to the Pacific. And these bison hunters in the middle were, you know, participating by, by moving hides and meat you know, not necessarily all the way to, to the ocean, but, you know, you can think of chains of connection that link the whole continent together. Hmm. So that's really different kind of hunting. No sites don't look anything like the sites on the rest of the Great Plains. Mm -hmm. I mean, except that, you know, it's got bison bones on them, but 
you get places like Head Smashed In or Gull Lake or Old Women's Spice Buffalo Jump up in Canada, place it down into Montana, and you'll get five, six, seven meter deep uh, accumulations of bison bump at the foot of cliffs and things like that. Just astonishing. Boar, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, boar is classic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but you just don't see that in other times and places. What have you been doing this year? The, the, this, what, what did you do all summer? Um, so the first part of the summer, I was in the field up by Shadra. Um, work been doing a project looking at um, something entirely non-Paleo-Indian. <laughs> One of the nice things about my job is I can chase different interests as my interests change. Um, mm-hmm. But the, you know, the classic sort of American goes back to people you know, saying, where does the West start? And that kind of thing. Waldo Wadle's work in the first part of the century, it's always been, you don't get farming on the Great Plains west of the 99th meridian, because you, know, you just don't get enough, um, you don't get enough rain to bring in, a, you know, to count on bringing in a crop. And um, there's always been this one site out near Shadron where they found maize crops, you know, charred maize, um, in a Plains Village house and pottery and bison bone and, you know, clearly settled by, by some kind of horticultural group. And so I've been working up in that area trying to find another site because that one's, that one's gone. I mean, we have found one just on Bordeaux Creek, just the Easter Shed. And so we were digging a house this last summer, and uh, I, just, I laugh about this. I, uh, I thought this other feature that we were digging was, was going to be a house, but it turned into a pottery kiln. And of all the people in archaeology who don't do pottery, um, I'm somewhere near the top of the list. Mm-hmm. So, but we dug out this this kiln and a small, some kind of a small habitation structure with a hearth and lots and lots of, well, not lots and lots of pottery, um, but definitely pottery. And we've got knees and bison scapula hose and things like that, way, way too far west. So that's what I did in June. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then since then, I have stepped into the department chair job here. So since then, I've been going to meetings. <laughs> so it's either congratulations or our, or our condolences. Yeah, both. Both. They go together in this particular case. Yeah. Yeah. I got to say, the first part of the summer was more fun than the second part. Imagine. What's next for Doug Bamper? Well, I've got to. Finished with field work at least for a little bit, and I've been teaching. I've been doing my excavations with our field school, which is actually really wonderful, working with undergraduates in the field. Um, but then I'm handing the field school off to one of my colleagues for a few years. Wow. And I'll do this administrative stuff and write up what I've got, which I think is, is good stuff. And then kind of decide what my next project is. And I'm not sure. I've got, I've got one more project in me, I suppose. And we'll, I'm not sure what that's going to be. It's a few years left. I might go look at AD 1300, because we know where some of those, we know where the sites are that are that age. People haven't looked at them in a long time. That might be fun. Unless a millionaire gives me a bunch of money to do paleo and stuff. I'll do that. Well, well, I tell you what, that, that'd, be, that'd be wonderful. Everyone I talk to is, is, uh, talks about the same funding issues, about, oh. about how small it's and, and how uh, difficult it is to, uh, to actually uh, you know, get it done. Yeah, yeah. Federal funding is drying up across the sciences. Actually, the, um, it's not just anthropology; um, it's declining. NSF funding is declining. Even biomedical stuff, um, federal support is declining and shifting over to the private sector. 
and the private sector, by and large, isn't that interested in archaeology. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where this goes. We're really nobody's more dependent than we are. Crowdfunding might. There are people, some archaeologists are turning to crowdfund. It's just interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I saw that. Well, Doug, thank you for uh, thank you for being with us today. It was it was a remarkable discussion. Uh, the, the Allen site is a is a remarkable site, and, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Great, I'm glad you called. <laughs>